Destructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with triumph crown. Let the lands that sit in darkness hear the glorious gospel sound. Good evening, welcome to The War Room. This is your host, Bill Evans. I've got Rachel Haggerty on the phone. Rachel is an on-air hostess with Awake of Sleeper. Uh, that's then her program on the Christian Patriot Network. It's a live internet radio venue. And Rachel it lives in Henderson, Nevada. Rachel, welcome to the War Room. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. I mentioned that I had not been successful in listening to the episode due to various different conditions. But what reawakened my interest is to hear that the wife of a friend, Mike Gully, Heather, has also a program on the same network, I suppose. It's uh, Battle Ready Homestead. So I want to give a shout out to Heather Gully. A Waco Sleeper deals with abolition of abortion, correct? That's correct, yes. Why don't you tell our listeners, Rachel, a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a an abolitionist warrior. Oh, wow. How much time do we have? No, I'm just kidding. So I've just been an abolitionist probably since 2013, 14-ish. So I met Daniel Crane. He's the creator and producer of Christian Patriots Radio. And we met at the D.C. conference. Um, when was that? Last September? And after the conference, we were on the same team. He asked if I wanted to host a show on his network. And I thought, you know, why me? I'm just, I'm not equipped. I'm not the right person for this job. But uh, I just think that this is an opportunity to spread abolitionism and just help to get the word out there. I'm talking to sometimes an audience that may not be as well-versed as some of my abolitionist friends. But then we do, you know, have abolitionists that that tune in and um, call or I try to have them on to interview. Unfortunately, the subject isn't as, like, fun as Heather's show, Battle Ready Homestead. She can have a little bit of fun with her show. And, you know, our content just tends to, you know, we're dealing with the, the, the murder of innocent children. Pretty grisly so, issue. Yeah, it's a grisly issue. And yeah, it can just be a little daunting at times. But I just want to bring that information and use the opportunity that I've been given to further the movement. How did you uh, first come to be an abolitionist? Well, I grew up going to a Christian preschool. I had Christian neighbors that took me to church with them. Throughout junior high, I went to youth group with a friend. And in fact, I wanted to tell you this, I have sat in front of abortion clinics with Operation Rescue way back in the day, probably in like 88, 89, did some, you know, some blockading of some clinics when I was in youth group, if you can believe that. <laughs> and I never really thought about it until I started becoming an abolitionist. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I did that way back then. Um, but of course, as I grew into my teens and early 20s, you know, I was in rebellion against the Lord. And even though I knew he had his finger on me, but I was just kind of doing my own thing. And, you know, I met my husband in 1998. We had a baby. We got married. He grew up Southern Baptist. But, you know, certain events happened in his life as well to kind of just uh, send him, you know, on a walk that didn't include walking with the Lord at the time. But, um, you know, after we had children, my daughter, Ella, we started going to church. And, you know, I, I probably considered myself a Christian. Um, but I don't think I was really saved until August of 2013. 
my husband and I were separated for two years and divorced for six months. And by the grace of God, someone spoke truth into my life and the course of my life just changed. And so once I became a Christian, and you know, I started going to church in Carson City, Nevada and met the Robinson family. You may know the Robinsons. And they were involved in abolition and abolish human abortion. And my daughter was actually the first one to start going to like standing out with signs and agitating. She started agitating with um, the society in Reno. At first I didn't know how I felt about it. And, you know, then I went out agitating and I didn't know how I felt about graphic signs in front of children. And then, then I didn't know how I, you know, and as I progress, you just walk out all these different things that aren't sitting right with you. And then, you know, you come around to the realization especially just as my walk with the Lord continues, my growing as a Christian. It's just funny when people have their reservations about things. I once did too, and then I tested it against scripture and the culture. So yeah, that's a little bit about how I became an abolitionist. So definitely a Robinson family, Abolitionist Society of Reno, Nevada. And then down here in Vegas, I stand at the mill with Chet Gallagher and Joanne Gallagher and some other other, uh, faithful saints. I wouldn't say we have much of an abolitionist society here, but I think we are all abolitionists, but there's just some that don't associate or with the ideology. You all have a um, fellowship? Even with me, you know, it's one of the questions that almost you stumble into. It's almost like you can't help it is, uh, are are you a part of a local congregation or do you all fellowship together or do you have family worship or how's that working out? My family does have a local church that we attend, and it's been hard. When I moved to Vegas, it was so hard. I loved my church family in Carson City, and we were a very small fellowship, and we were kind of, our pastor had left the church, and we were just kind of almost starting like a new organic type home church, and that was really hard for me to leave. So when I came to Vegas, like we went through all the mega churches, and the prosperity preaching in this city is, it's just, it was really difficult. Um, I'd look around at these churches that had all this money that they were spending on lights and equipment. And not to say that that's always a bad thing, but that put together with the message from the pulpit, a lot of the times just wasn't sitting well with me. So it was really difficult to find church. And finally, we're like, let's just go to this church down the street, Baptist church. And we just kind of fell in and, um, you know, that's, that's basically our home church. They've been supportive of me as an abolitionist, but I haven't seen any like real action. Uh, the pastor's wife did come out to a project frontline and I do need to, you know, I'm often convicted that I need to do more seating right in my home church, but my husband's been working on Sundays. So we've been trying to go to church in the evening. And so we've tried some different churches out, just like some different churches that my friends go to. And so as far as fellowshipping together, the only fellowship we do together as a society is like in front of the mills or when we go to high schools or because we all live, it seems like opposite ends of the earth in Vegas because we're so spread out. But, um, you know, Chet and Joanne, they go to a Messianic church. And then I have some other brothers that go to a Baptist church. It's just like an hour from here. So, uh, but yes, I do have a local congregation that I meet with. So, Now, you also, I think um, what's interesting, too, is that you you are a, a health and fitness <laughs> instructor, counselor. Uh, yes. So I'm sure you being sort of a role model for these women who are desiring to gain control of their health and their and their physique. How has that worked out as far as ministry opportunities? Well, yeah, it's funny you should ask because 
my owners, I love them dearly. They're, you know, they're wonderful women. Um, they own a studio and they actually had to ask me to not be friends with people on Facebook because of my posts. So I was very, and Heather will tell you, cause I like asked her for counseling on this too. Um, I was very torn. I was just, but it's social media. They have a business and sometimes we have to draw a line between, but then even as I say that, I'm like, how can I draw a line between work and my faith? Like we are supposed to, Christ is supposed to have dominion in every area of our life. Right. So it's a difficult thing. Um, but I started like a separate Facebook account so I could be friends with clients in the studio. They just didn't want anyone to come into the studio and feel bad about like if they've had an abortion, I guess. So that was tough. My husband was really upset. He thought it was discrimination. And it's so funny that he is supportive like that of me. And he just sees the truth that if I was shouting, shout your abortion and hashtagging shout your abortion or, you know, homosexual, homosexual agenda or something like that, I just don't know that they, they would have asked me to unfriend people from the studio. So that was tough. And I don't mean to say, you know, make any disparaging remarks about them, but, um, so that's been tough, but it's hard for me. I, I have to live by example to these women. I'm not the owner, you know, the owners, they have a business that, the, you know, this is their dream, their life. They've put a lot of money into this and investment of time. And they definitely know my feelings. They know that I'm a Christian. And again, I just try to, you know, live by lifestyle and example, but I have recently gotten to some conversations with some other women that are Christians uh, recently, like one talking about IVF and orphans. So I do try to, you know, shine a light <laughs> when I can. And when I'm presented the opportunity, it's difficult for me to be in that situation. It's not like I work for myself and I can. Do you and Jimmy have any dreams or aspirations to be independent where you can obey your conscience and uh, take ownership of your own time? Y'all, Have y'all explored or looking into anything like well, that? <laughs> It's funny. I owned a salon for like years, my own business. I owned a hair salon. I was a hairdresser for years. And, you know, sometimes he talks about wanting to have his own business and I'm just like, Oh gosh, I never want to do that again. Maybe it'd be different, you know, another time. It's just, it's so I don't know. I thought about working for myself. This is a new thing that I just do part time in September. I was able to quit my job. as I was in sales in the, in the beauty industry. Like once we moved to Vegas, I went into sales for a minute, but through learning more about reconstructionism and just, I mean, Christianity, basically, I realized that I should not have my child in a public school system. And so by the grace of God, uh, my husband's been supportive about allowing me, not allowing me, that's the wrong word, but we've worked our lives to where I could quit that job in September and start homeschooling my son. God's been faithful to provide and so I just have this job. It's, you know, a part-time job and I love it. But as far as our own, I don't know what we're, I don't know what the future holds. You know, I well, just try to live by faith and prayer. And now because you're a, you're, you're a vocal and energetic and you're involved in one of the hardest of ministries. Um, and you're obviously excited about not only the battle, but also growing in your faith. Is it a challenge for Jimmy to stay ahead of you and to be a spiritual <laughs> leader? Because obviously you've got a strong personality, you've got drive, and a, and a lot of men, you know, they're working full time to pay right. the bill. Yes, yes. And so, so you know where I'm going. Yeah, I think it is hard for him. You know, 
we've talked before and he's like, well, you get to do all those things, you know? And I'm like, yeah, but I want to do them together. You know, I want to be a team. I want to, but being that this is a new thing with me being taken out of the work field and obviously the pressure's put on him to be the provider, you know, we're trying to figure this all out, but I mean, he's definitely supportive of what I do. I wouldn't call him an abolitionist. I think in order to be an abolitionist, like you have to, there has to be action behind your ideology. But, you know, as far as our, our ideology, he, he believes in it and he supports me a hundred percent in abolitionism. And he's done the work as well, but I definitely would say that I'm more involved and busier with, you know, being out in front of the clinics, Project Frontline. I am trying to get him to go to our next conference, our next big event, so when we go out of town. Right. I think that he would re- really be encouraged by um, various brothers in abolition. Um, I think it would be encouraging for him, and it would spur him on. And Well, really, you're just uh, you're sort of still in your exuberant, honeymoon phase where you haven't your your first love your first love hasn't worn off yet in other words you're and what's interesting about your testimony is that you basically embraced christ you know united to christ by faith repented and then you immediately were thrust into this lifestyle it's kind of like first century christians okay you get saved and then you go down to the coliseum and get eaten you know that's what christians do Until finally all your enemies are converted. That really is your introduction. You were born in sort of in the heat of battle, and that's what you know. And I don't want this to sound like it's just sort of a a personal conversation getting to know you, but I think you put a face on abolition. Uh, As a woman at the mills, at the project front lines, tell us, because we've all been watching Joe and Toby and Todd and the guys there in Frisco, and I've met a few women, Diana Klein in Tampa, Deanna Waller, they're both champions. I don't want to slight any sisters, because there's a lot of them that are just out there doing the work. And the brothers sometimes kind of get the notoriety. So I'm curious, because you're outspoken and dynamic, what sort of unique challenges and our perspectives, our opportunities, do you feel like the fact that you're a woman, a mother, a wife, gives you in, in these confrontations, in these environments? Well, my testimony, for sure, you know, I can relate to women that are walking into the abortion mill. I can relate to adultery and sin compiled on top of sin, which drives these women to hide their sin and shame by having abortions. And so I think that I can relate to that. But I've also had to learn to, you know, I'm an emotional person. And I've had to learn to curb that and to let my husband lead or just curb that emotionalism sometimes. And I don't think that any of us do it for the notoriety necessarily. Um, But you're right. Like a lot of the men, you know, they have women, uh, wives, you know, that are wives and moms. And so maybe you don't see them as active on Facebook or in videos. but, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm still learning. I watch a lot of the other abolitionist women. I watch videos. I listen, and I just try to learn. I've had to really love people more. There was a time that I just wanted to be right, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I need to love these women. I'm not loving these people. I'm trying to win an argument, and I'm getting emotional, and so that's always hard. I think women are emotional, and so for me personally, I've just had to learn to love these women more because when they go in there and they're cussing at you and they know they're murdering their baby and they don't care. And, you know, sometimes 
they're the hardest people to love, but Christ tells us to do the hard things. And I've learned a lot from, in particular, Mike Gully and, and some of the brothers. Mike, in particular, he never goes anywhere without taking materials, and they're always drop carding, they're always seating, they're always engaging people. He's always wearing AHA right. gear, and he is uh, probably more than anyone I know is more intense and late focused like a laser beam, uh, almost right. to the extent that I wonder sometimes how he does the job that he does, mm-hmm. uh, because he just he walks it, talks it, eats it, sleeps it. And what's interesting is, and one of the questions I was think, considering is when you're meeting people, what comes first? The, the message of abolition, of abortion, or the message of the gospel? Or have they become just so interwoven that to talk about one is to talk about both of them? That is such a great question. And, you know, when I first got saved, I mean, until, you know, maybe a year or so ago, I had a hard time sharing the gospel. And that's something I still want to be better at. And that's part of when I say I need to love people better. But, you know, I was talking to my sister in the faith, Kate Robinson, and she's someone I, you know, I love to watch her speak to women and and men at clinics because she's just, and she'll tell you she doesn't love people good enough either. But, you know, I just, she always has the right things to say. She always seems like she's, you know, loving people. And so I really admire listening to her. And we were talking about how abolitionism has given us the opportunity to share the gospel. We don't have to, like, get to know people and, you know, have this long intro of getting to know someone before we share the gospel. People outside of abolition, AHA, think that, you know, we don't put the gospel first, but that's so not true, as you know, like, that's first and foremost. But as a woman, it's really given me the opportunity to share the gospel and to get better at sharing the gospel as a woman. And now evangelizing is something that I see as more important than than I ever did before and I'm learning how to how to do it better and how to love people and share the gospel but I still need to be better at it well you know because this war room episode a lot of times we sort of ease into the tactical stuff we start talking to an individual who has a compelling story we want our listeners to know who you are we want them to know what challenges and opportunities you're surrounded with so that your name will come to mind and they'll pray for you throughout the week. People don't pray for people they don't know or never heard of. And so one of the things of exposing, I wonder if people get the impression that in time, every program on Reconstructionist Radio is going to deal one way or the other with abolition. Well, in a manner, are we ever going to talk about anything else? In one way or another, because it is the issue of our age, it is the tragedy, the abomination of our age, it's easy to segue into it or from it. I think one of the things when we're talking about sharing the gospel, and I, on one of our weekly prayer meetings, I challenged myself and the other brothers and sisters that were in attendance as how many times you had shared the gospel with someone in the last week. You know, none of us, with the possible exception of the, of the people that are out in the project front lines or out at the mills, really feel, you know, you have a, a natural opportunity to proclaim Christ. Now, the thing about it is it doesn't always come across as the typical canned evangelical for spiritual laws. God has a wonderful plan for your life, the Romans road. I think what's so positive about it and so proper about it is that you're starting with the law of God. Mm -hmm. 
until people are confronted with their own guilt and their own transgression of the law of God, they think they're all right. In Isaiah chapter 1, it says, the law shall go out from Zion, and then the nations will stream into it. But one of the problems of our age is that the body of Christ in America, the institutional ecclesia, has a gospel of grace with no law. One of the things that I discovered with abolitionists, I think to a man and woman, is that whether or not they identify as being reformed in their their soteriology or whether they identify as being victorious in their expectation of the future in reference to the gospel, that's code word for Uh, (laughs) post-millennial, they're all theonomic. They all believe that the law of God is relevant. They may not have explored all the case laws and how the various different laws within the two tables, you know, relate to this or that. But in terms of at least to the extent that God says you shall not murder, and they understand that it's wrong because God says it's wrong, to that extent, they all start out as being very rudimentary, but definitely theonomic. Right off the bat, they they know that the law of God is where it starts and is what gives motive to their message. I think it's a natural segue as people start thinking about the law of God. And, of course, as Bojadar mentioned in Texas, but you, don't, uh, you don't engage in a battle. You have no expectation of winning, right. not for long. And so the various different tenets of Reconstruction, you ultimately end up sort of connecting the dots. I think it's a match made in heaven. Uh, <laughs> we've heard, and I've heard it more and more recently, Joe Salant has been doing a great job, and Toby his preaching does a great job. Russell does a great job. And we we don't hear as many sisters practicing their Cy Tambrugenkate impersonation. You know, Cy makes arguing presuppositionally seem simple. Right. I think once you understand that it is God's existence and his self-authenticating word that makes anything meaningful and rational, you feel almost bulletproof when you're engaging people in these matters, because you know that you're talking to a fool. And you mentioned earlier, before we started recording that, that you've listened to episodes of Ask the Root of the War of other, maybe audio books on Reconstructions Radio. So has Reconstructions Radio been a uh, a positive blessing? Has it helped you? And if so, how? Yes, for sure. Well, as I was saying before we were recording that I, you know, as I listened to, you know, Gary North's audiobooks, I think Bo was actually the first thing that I listened to, Freedom Conference, a couple of years ago. And I was like, well, duh, of course. Doesn't everybody believe this? Isn't this just being a Christian? Um, which I'm finding out not. It's funny you say, we don't hear the women preaching. I want to say, well, we're in the back room uh, making casseroles and being quiet. Uh, that's what somebody told me to watch out for when I went to my Baptist church. But I'm definitely, you know, learning a ton through Reconstructionism. And then just even listening to Joe Salant, like you said today, and Toby um, out in front of a high school, uh, it just even more helped me to, I guess, be able to answer the different arguments. I always feel like I can learn something from, you know, various people, what they bring to the table. And, and you know, the way they did talk with the, the kids, it, like you said, it didn't seem like they were bulletproof. They pretty much had an answer for every argument. And I would like to be better at that, especially as our culture, you know, they don't find a problem with their behaviors. They don't see sin as sin. Rachel, how would you describe when you're out in front of the mills? Are uh, <laughs> are most of the people reconstructionists or no? And does it make it challenging when you're, are you ever at odds with one another in terms of 
how you go about ministering? I think there are those times. It's funny, when I first came here, we were praying, you know, when I first moved here, praying and praying that, you know, the Lord would bring us some people to help stand against abortion. And of course, I want more abolitionists. And the Lord did send that help, but not abolitionists at first. And in fact, almost, you know, opposed abolitionism, but faithfully, you know, the Lord brought some of these brothers around. And so that's been good because, yeah, there was nothing, you know, contentious or anything, but just we didn't see eye to eye. But you know, when you first become an abolitionist, like I was saying about myself, there were certain things that I didn't, that didn't sit well with me at first. And so I just, we all have been brought around in our thinking and it's taken time. And so we just have to be patient um, and loving and bring, you know, bring these brothers and sisters along um, because, you know, many are coming out of the pro-life movement. And, but as far as ministering at the middle, you know, there's different thoughts on women you know, open-air preaching or sharing the gospel. Um, I don't know if sharing the gospel is definitely preaching, but I just, I know that there are some Reformed brothers that if there's men out at the mill, they don't think that women should be men. But if you have a mom and dad going into the clinic to kill their baby, it's an urgent situation, and I'm going to plead like somebody's life was in jeopardy because somebody's life is in jeopardy. It's an urgent situation, and man, woman, or whoever is there to hear Sometimes I, I, the best I, man for the job is a woman. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I've had to, you know, take counsel from various people and their thoughts about it because, you know, we've gone to scripture about it, and I understand why some of these reformed brothers they don't want their wives talking to men if they're there to do, you know, because they're there so they can do the teaching. There's no reason why their wife would have to to minister if they're there to minister. But I, and then there's the brothers at the mill that, you know, first thing they do when I get there in the morning is like, do you feel like speaking on the acre today? And they value, you know, me being there because a lot of times women will tell the men, you don't know what I'm going through. You haven't been here. So there's, you know, having women at the mill is important because there's that relational with the other women (laughs) challenging the time. Is there a different dynamic uh, from the mill to the project frontline? Yes. So for us, Project Frontline, I mean, you can engage in conversation. Like these kids, they're smart. You know, they are intelligent and, you know, they will engage in conversation with you. And at least if you get an argument, you get an opportunity to help them think out their their logic and show them the inconsistencies in their logic. But when you're at the mill, like you have 15 seconds from the time they get out of the car to the time they get in the door to just like... You want to preach the gospel, but you also want to, you know, plead with them not to kill their child, and you've got 15 seconds, and it's like, it can just be discouraging at times, you know, but Project Frontline, you can engage in those conversations, plant that seed, have some good conversations, and so I feel like there's just sometimes a little bit more rewarding, but that's why I like that, you know, Project Frontlines is called Project Frontlines for a reason, because the mill is like the final line, and obviously being out in the culture is going to be your front line, but... Have you and Jimmy talked about what would happen if a woman or a couple came in to murder their baby and said, well, would you adopt this baby if I don't kill it? Yes, we have. And we've actually gone to foster training when we were in northern Nevada. So we did foster training there, and um, then we moved, and so we didn't end up fostering. There are a few issues that we're trying to work out so that we can be able to to foster. So, yeah, it's definitely something that we've wanted to do, and there's been some opportunities or potential opportunities where it was like, you know what, this woman might not want to keep this baby. She was abortion-minded. Now she's, you know, she's not going to abort the baby, but she may want to give it up. And is that something that that we can do? And, and he was like, 
It's certainly not something you do lightly. It's certainly no. not a commitment you, 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 you walk into lightly. No. That's about as heavy duty as it gets. Very heavy. And he does, you know, balk a little bit at the 18 plus. I mean, it's not just an 18 year commitment, but I mean, there's just, that's huge. That's huge. And our kids are, you know, 17 and 11. Looking back, I wish I would have done things differently. You know, I, we weren't following, in my opinion, God's design for marriage and for family. And now that I get deeper into reconstructionism too, I see God's design for families. Like we're supposed to send, you know, have big families, send our children out into the world to disciple every corner, you know, every corner of the earth to spread Christian influence into the, into the culture. If the Lord ever wanted to bless us with a little miracle. Just not as missionaries into Caesar's school, that's all. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Let me ask you one other question, and then um, we've got some uh, commitments here on our end mm-hmm. because it's close to it's 11 p.m. here in Tampa, and uh, we've got to pick up a load this evening that's destined for Portland, Oregon. But uh, anyway... I want to ask you, you living in the greater Las Vegas area in, in uh, Henderson on the hill, obviously people have their own perspectives of, of, of that community and its, its basic MO. Uh, uh-huh. are, there, are, there, are, there, are there unique challenges, would you say, that go to ministering and or even being a Christian in where you live? Oh, gosh. In the greater, you know, being in Las Vegas, I feel like everybody's seen everything like there's nothing that doesn't happen in Vegas. Right. So sometimes I feel like trying to minister people just, they're so used to people handing stuff out on the streets and, you know, preach open air preaching. And so I just feel like the apathy here, that's it. The apathy here is just, it's huge because, you know, Las Vegas is a huge city. How many churches do we have here? And trying to get people to come out to the abortion mills has been such a challenge. You know, people just pay their money to the Women's Resource Center, to the CPCs. You know, that's what the churches do here, and and they think that they're helping, and they think they're doing their part. So, getting people to actually take action is is a is a huge issue here. And I mean, I think that it is everywhere. But and I'm also guilty of not. I need to probably be pressing my pastors more. And that's what's hard about not having a husband that's an abolitionist. You know, I don't want to go to a new church and be like oh, pastor, you know, I want to set up a meeting with you and I want to, I feel like, you know, my husband's the one that should be doing that. And he's he's willing to do that and sit there with me. I'm more of the teacher. I would be more of the teacher on abolition. But um, so that's been a little bit difficult, but I definitely think that I need to be seating at my home church more and making an effort to to talk with Christians and go to churches. So, well, that's, that's part of, uh, sort of the new perspective, if you will, on ecclesiology is that if you're not part of a congregation that is assisting you and equipping you and sharpening you in what God has called you to do, then what's the point of being there? Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, but you have to be in a quote unquote church. Well, you're, are you in Christ? Are you united to him by faith? Then you're in the only church there is, and that's Absolutely. the body of Christ. And, and I do, uh, you yeah. became a member. Yeah, you became a member when you received Christ by faith and were sealed in Him with with the Holy Spirit. 
Absolutely. So, you know, I, I can say putting in a plug and encouraging people to go back and really listen thoughtfully to what Beaujardar is saying. And maybe it seems like he's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But we have, and I was talking with a, a, a dear brother today who's a pastor, and uh, Joseph Randall Spurgeon up in uh, mm-hmm. with P82 Ministries in Louisville, and he's been right there out leading his people, uh, the congregation, and, and he leads from the front, and by example, he's a good man, he's a warrior, and he's a uh, dedicated father, and he's a dedicated churchman in the yeah. traditional mold, and I don't, I don't take that away from him. But I challenged him, as I would challenge our listeners, is that we have a model, an American church paradigm, and its ineffectiveness is the reason why we live in the culture that we do. Now, we're a part of that problem. Yeah. It's not, when we say it's the church is failing, well, it's, it's not a question of us versus them. Hey, we are the church. Right. And so when I'm pointing a finger at the pastor or the elders or the First Baptist or Grace Presbyterian on the corner, I got three fingers pointing back at myself. <laughs> right, right. So, and I totally uh, agree. Not, yeah. I've been listening to Jason. I think it's Jason Garwood, right, from Michigan. I've been right, listening to exactly. him. His, yeah. Yeah. I can't point, like you just said, I can't point the finger at the other churches around me in my neighborhood when I'm not doing at my local fellowship when I'm not spurring those people on and agitating and seeding within my own fellowship. So that was kind of my point about that. Well, perhaps, you know, this is the, the, the moral of it is when you've done all you can do, uh, if they prove to be unreceptive or reject the message, then hopefully your husband and you will have the fortitude and the, the clarity of vision and the sense of freedom in Christ to shake the dust off your feet. And if necessary, Start a, you know, I've often, I, I, I talked with Jason, uh, Sanchez about this and I said, you know, the definition of a, of, of an ecclesia of a church, I mean, I don't, I intentionally refrain from using the word church because it's a misused misconstruction. Right. But the ecclesia, but the definition, <laughs> the definition of a church is, is three large families in a living room. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, you know, you, you live in a neighborhood. God has sovereignly placed you in a zip code. Right. And so for people to get in their vans and, and, and drive, you know, 30 minutes across town to go to a building uh, that has nothing to do, has no presence, nothing to do where the neighborhood where they live, it's sort of, it's sort of, okay, how is, right. how does this relate to the Great Commission? Oh, goodness, yes. Um, you know. Living in Vegas, it's really showed me, unfortunately or unfortunately, but it showed me how it's a it's a big business out here. And I mean, everywhere, Churchianity of America, it's like big business. I see how it's run like a corporation and it breaks my heart. And it's just, you know, I almost don't want to find out that my church is not, they're not going to, or my church building, my church fellowship, that they're not going to be Christians and, and stand up for abolition. It's, I think maybe that's even why I'm dragging my feet. I just, you know, it's just so sad to me, um, the the lack of action, the inaction in our church today. So, Well, um, you know, you, you live in a neighborhood or, or a condominium uh, or community or something like that. And, and you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, you and your, you and your uh, husband can just go out and be friends. Right. And reach out to people and... Uh, People don't 
care how much you know until they know how much you care. So right. that's, a, that's an age-old strategy that seems to never quit working. We need a recon so I, uh, out here, or fellowship. We need some recon fellowship out here. <laughs> well, we don't have much of that. Well, hopefully we'll, when we get, next time we get out there, you know, it's always a challenge for me to, to actually engage in any sort of agitation or any kind of church repent or, or uh, project front lines just because I'm on the go all the time. And right. one of the things I need to do is learn to stop and take time off and and do that, it's it, it's sometimes it's just difficult to fit in a an interview uh, and then right. to edit it and put it out put it out there. But you know, I wanted to to talk with you tonight and uh, wrap this up, but just um, because our sisters in the faith are out there doing the same work we're doing as the brothers are doing, and oftentimes, well, they don't get the praise, they don't get the appreciation, they don't get the not that you're looking for attention or you're looking for accolades, but we want to honor our sisters in the faith and, 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 and you're, you're able, I mean, you're like a secret weapon, Rachel. You can get into places that I could not get into. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and you can, and you can probe chinks in a, in a, in a woman's armor or in a child that a guy can't, can't do. So you're a weapon in the hand of the Lord and, and may your tribe increase. So we thank you well, thank for joining you. us here tonight. And folks, I you know I don't know what you take away from these episodes. I get more than I give. I guarantee you that. And I've been so mm-hmm. blessed to meet all my abolitionist brothers and sisters and my Reconstructionist brothers and sisters. And I hope that you're blessed to get to know Rachel and her husband a little bit via this episode of The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2 by my soul among lions.